Keith Lowell Jensen presents the Keith Lowell Jensen Show with Keith Lowell Jensen. All right, uh, it's me, Keith Lowell Jensen, here on Keith Lowell Jensen presents the Keith Lowell Jensen Show with Keith Lowell Jensen. And uh, this is it. This is number two. So I've, I've, it's real now. I'm a podcaster, casting pod. Uh, the first one we talked with Anton Barbeau, uh, a wonderful musician, and I hope that uh, some new people were introduced to Anton. Um, today, we're going to talk music again. Uh, upcoming subjects in the future include comic books. Uh, we're going to look at the world of indie video games, which I didn't even know was a thing until uh, I was hired to, <laughs> true story, I was hired to play a clown to promote a video game called Dropsy the Clown. And I, I was on IGN up at noon. Um, I was exposed to this whole bizarre world uh, while dressed as Dropsy the Clown and also running around San Francisco in that costume, finding out that a lot of people have clown phobia. It's not a rare thing. It's fairly common. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we're going to talk about indie video games and then uh, just so much comic books. Com- we'll keep coming back to comic books because that's a little bit of an obsession of mine. Um Today we have an author of a book about music, so not not just another musician, but something different. Before we get into that, I want to thank our first sponsor, uh, once again, 800 Pound Gorilla Records. Uh, it's also my record label. I made a promise to you on the first episode that I'm never on this show ever going to say that I like something that I don't like, which actually is a subject I want to ask my author friend about in a minute. Um, so yeah, I will never say that I like something that I don't like. Uh, and that includes people that are paying me to say that they sponsored our thing. And that's really easy with our first sponsor because they're my record label. Uh, it's, they've released my last few records. They've treated me really well and I love them. Uh, Dan Soder is the latest artist whose uh, record Son of a Gary, 800 Pound Gorilla, put out. And you can find it everywhere. It's on Spotify. It's on iTunes. It's on all the places where you go to get music. And, uh, you know, while you're at it, they also put out, uh, as I mentioned, some specials uh, and albums by yours truly. My latest one is called Not For Rehire. And uh, go listen to it. Go watch it. You can watch it right now on uh, Amazon Prime for free if you have Prime. Sorry to make you support the devil. If you want to go buy it somewhere else, you can do that also. But uh, if you're already supporting them by paying Amazon Prime, go watch my darn special. Make sure to comment on it and leave a like. Um, And speaking of that, subscribe to this here podcast. We can use subscribers, tell a friend, get the word of mouth going. We would like to be uh, more popular than the Beatles, who, as you may know, were more popular than Jesus. So we've got to one-up them. Um, Great. That's enough of my blathering. So many podcasts I listen to, way too much of the host blathering up front. I'm de- that's it. I'm done blathering. Um, vote. There, I'll throw that in. And now I'm going to introduce my guest. And I, the guest today actually is a, is a good friend of mine, someone I like quite a bit. Um, and I'm super, super excited about his book. But I'm going to introduce him by reading you uh, the description of him in the book, Aaron Carnes is a music journalist based out of Sacramento, California. His work has appeared in Playboy, Salon, Bandcamp, uh, Daily Sierra Club, Noisy, and Sun Magazine. He is also the music editor at Good Times Santa Cruz, a weekly newspaper where he tries to sneak in ska content whenever his boss isn't looking. Aaron has been listening to ska since the early 90s. He used to play drums in a ska band, and now he just plays ska on the car stereo. When he's not defending Ska, he enjoys backpacking with his wife, Amy B, 
also a very talented writer, I'll add in. And talking about music from every existing genre, though Ska will always be his favorite. Aaron Carnes, how are you, my friend? Doing good. Thank you for having me on. Oh, thanks for being on and, and for loving the Ska. I, I love Ska, and I've loved Ska since I was a little boy. So thank you for writing this book. Can't wait yeah. to discuss it with you. You're yeah. um, you're doing a lot of podcasts right now. <laughs> I am. It's different. You're, yeah. <laughs> well, you're you're a journalist. Is yeah. it strange for you being on the other side of the tape recorder, so to speak? It is. Not only is it weird to be interviewed, but I'm being interviewed, speaking, and having all, everything I say released, not just like cherry picking quotes and stuff. Like because I usually deal in in print media. So you have a lot more control. Yeah, yeah. So it's different. <laughs> I, yeah, you're not going to like this. I've got all kinds of gotcha questions. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, my whole purpose here is to trip you up and make you regret doing this. So um, I would like to, before we get into discussing the book, uh, talk to you a little bit about uh, your history, uh, including your history in, in journalism. Mm-hmm. Um, but first off, uh, where'd you grow up? So I'm from Gilroy, California, which is uh, Gilroy's the garlic capital of the world, um, which, <laughs> which made famous, uh, what was it, one or two years ago when there was a shooter there at the garlic yes. festival? Yes. But yeah, otherwise, yeah. yeah. What a world, huh? You're not, yeah. uh, you're not a real town. You're not really on the map until <laughs> you've had your own mass shooting. Um, uh, I moved to Sacramento. Tell me- oh, go ahead. Well, I'm, I'm going to stick you in Gilroy a little bit longer, but tell me about Gilroy. What was it like growing up there? Gilroy is not really very remarkable. It's just like a small enough town that there's not enough to do there, but it's not a – there's there's shopping to do there. It's just big enough for like a shopping <laughs> center. Okay. So, But it's it was it's close to San Jose. It's only like 30-minute drive to San Jose and then maybe an hour, hour and a half to like San Francisco, East Bay. So – Everything and Santa Cruz is like 45 minutes. So everything to do when you're a teenager in Gilroy is just, you know, a car ride away. And that was the goal was to get out of Gilroy, go to shows, go to do all the fun and exciting stuff in the big cities. Did that give uh, creative people from Gilroy um, a chip on their shoulder? Because I, I feel like Sacramento has that, you know, San Francisco is our bigger city there to the west. And sometimes we have a little chip on our shoulder of proving ourselves. I know Sacramento comedians definitely feel that way, where they're like, uh, nothing better than going into San Francisco and killing in front of a bunch of San Francisco <laughs> comics. Um, did you guys have that, that, that sense of like, uh, don't dismiss me as being just from Gilroy? No, I think we were too small. Like Sacramento, Sacramento's the right size um, to be in San Francisco's shadows, but to be big enough to like have fostered its own scene. Okay. So you guys get Gilroy, you didn't even bother. Huh? You're just like, no, nope, we'll go somewhere else. No, so you don't even want to tell people you're from Gilroy. Um, okay. But every, anybody, anybody who was a musician, I knew them. And there weren't a lot of musicians. When I was a teenager, it was like a small hand group of people. And there was only like two or three bands, too. There was hardly any bands at the time. Okay, so you're saying that, but did that include you? Were you yeah, a yeah. musician? My band started uh, when we were like, I mean, we started playing together when we were like sophomores, but we probably were ready to start gigging when we were like a a senior in high school, seniors. Okay. So, And uh, when did you start playing music yourself? 
Um, I, I grew up um, playing drums in the marching band. So I was in the fourth grade. I started doing marching band drums. And then when I was a freshman in high school, I quit. I just got sick of marching band. I'd never touched a drum set before. And then probably like six months after I quit, uh, my friends and I were like kind of dabbling in instruments and I was like, well, I play drums, I guess. So I could to get a drum set. And so that's, I just, that was a natural transition for me to, to be the drummer. Yeah. So, and then from then on out, I just, you know, because I had friends that I was playing with all the time, whenever we hung out, kind of, I got to be able to play good because to play drums, you have to get the coordination part. It's like riding a bike. You have to like master the, the, the coordination of your two arms and your legs. Once you get that, you can start playing. And it's much harder to play drums alone than say like a guitar. Right. Yeah. So you need, you need friends to jam with. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Although I I will say for any musicians listening and maybe you can uh, agree or disagree with this. If you want to learn how to play any instrument, go join a band. Yeah, I agree. I totally agree. I, I watched all my friends who were learning instruments in high school get good by joining bands before they were really ready to play in a band. So <laughs> their bands sucked. But then a year later, you're like, oh, wow, you guys got good. How'd that happen? And yeah, that's that, that's how it happened. That was all, all of my, my whole group of friends. We all were just starting together. And we all just and we went through all these different before ska happened. We went all through every single musical phase together. You know, we were like really into Pink Floyd and then, you know, really into like rock and roll. And, then you know, we're really into like metal. It's like we kind of kind of went through it all together. So so you were a band geek. I mean, that's yeah in you since, you know, you were very young. Uh, what about the writing? Did you did you write for the school newspaper or anything? Um. Were you writing like tortured love poetry in your closet? What, <laughs> what, what kind of writing did you do as a kid? So my history with writing is a little different. Like I, when I was a teenager, I did write like poetry. I kind of was, I kind of wrote it a little bit as a joke, but also kind of dark, but kind of as a joke too, which kind of made it, make it possible to be dark in a way. But that is a theme that's going to follow through <laughs> this entire interview. I mean, cause I, I know you and that's the, the whole joke, serious joke but dark that, yeah. that's kind of your thing i didn't know at the time i just thought it was silly but you know i can kind okay. of look back and see that it was like also dark but um what got me into writing is when i was um amy amy and i met when we were like really young like 20 and um we got together when we, we were both like 23 and i actually wasn't even that into reading i just came from a house that didn't do a lot of reading Oh, wow. I didn't take an interest in books, really. But Amy is super duper into books. And so she just started giving me all these really good books to read, like Kurt Vonnegut and, you know, just all the all the great, compelling authors. And ah, that's that's how you get someone to fall in love with you. You turn I, someone on to books. You got them. And I, I just loved it. Like, we just like would hang out and just read a lot. And um, that just got me really interested in writing. And so for most of my 20s, I was really into trying to write fiction and stuff. And um, there was a brief period uh, where I took a junior college class for journalism, like when I was 25. But that okay. was just like, but the, really the main theme of my 20s was I really wanted to write fiction. And um, I wrote fiction all the time and I read fiction all the time. Then um, when I, in my early 30s, I started just sort of feeling the like, 
I want to write and I want to be able to make a living writing. So I should explore other options of writing. And so I kind of was, you know, considered different things. And I thought, well, maybe like newspaper, nonfiction, writing newspaper, that might be an avenue that I can make some money. And so we were living in San Jose at the time. And I just like reached out to this like community newspaper that was like for like different like neighborhoods of San Jose. It was really small. Okay. I said, I would love to write for you. I, I, I just volunteered. I didn't like expect money out of it. I figured you had to kind of like, you had to have experience. So since I didn't have experience, I figured I would get experience. And so they're like, sure, sure. Yeah. We, we can't pay you, but you can write. And so I wrote for this like network of community papers in the San Jose area. And I would, the things I did would vary on one end of the spectrum it would be like super like boring, like community, like city type meetings where you would go listen to like new policy <laughs> and you would like summarize oh. it. Yeah. And then on the other end of the spectrum would be stuff like it's a uh, Easter and all the kids are coming out to the school to do an Easter egg hunt. So you'd show up and get photos, cute photos of kids getting eggs. And you do like a little write up of what, what it was like. So I just did that kind of stuff. <laughs> How is that the other side of the spectrum? I don't know, that, that was, was exciting. <laughs> that was, I was expecting on the other side of the spectrum, you know, Gigi Allen would come to town and play a concert <laughs> where he cut his face up. <laughs> no, no. The kids, they found, Keith, they would find so many eggs. It was just amazing. The eggs, they were everywhere. Well, that was definitely, it was definitely better than the council meetings. I, it's it's Gigi Allen exciting <laughs> com, in comparison. So and I, some of the kids probably did poop themselves. So, you know, the comparison is apt. So during this time too, before that, I had gotten a degree in film. I thought I wanted to do film. Okay. I was kind of losing interest in the idea of doing film, but I did, I did connect. So a lot of, a lot of broken dreams along the way here. (laughs) I didn't like the. Well, I made a, I made a documentary with some friends. It was a documentary about a San Jose music club called the cactus club. Okay. And you know, doing that documentary, doing other, I did some wedding videos, doing other stuff. I just really did not enjoy the actual work of what it entails to do. You know, that's. I'm glad that you said that. And I feel like everyone should go go do their bucket list, chase their dreams, try their things, but also be prepared to maybe. I, all my life, I thought I wanted my pilot's license. I was even in Civil Air Patrol in high school to like try to get my pilot's license. And then one year for Father's Day, my wife, knowing this, bought me this introduction to flight thing, and I got to go up in an airplane with this guy and do a flight simulator and all this stuff. And you know what I found out? I don't, I don't really want to fly an airplane. <laughs> this lifelong thing. And I was like, oh, yeah, I came back. And she's like, so she's ready for me to be like, yeah, we got to figure out how to finance flight school now or whatever. I came back. I was like, oh, yeah, no, I can cross that off the list. We're good. <laughs> so you, you crossed film school off your list or, or filmmaking. I did. I did complete it. I got a degree. But yeah, I just I didn't enjoy the work. And then um, after like, you know, six months maybe even less, like maybe four months of doing community reporting, I, I kind of got the nerve up to uh, send an email to Metro, which is the weekly newspaper in San Jose. Um, I also, the, that documentary had, we just finished it. So I kind of had that also as my credentials in a sense, because I was applying to write at the newspaper. And it was like, I'm, uh, I know a lot about music in this town. I, I made this documentary. And then I said, I'd you know, written for these community papers. So they were like, 
yeah, yeah, you can write for us. I mean, but it was funny as though as I basically had to do an internship, <laughs> meaning I had to write for free for a while, even though I wasn't oh. in school. <laughs> aren't the aren't the arts wonderful? <laughs> but uh, I went through that process anyways, and just like same same reason I did the community papers, I just wanted to put in my you know pay my dues, and then as soon right. as I got through that process, they they said I could freelance, and I freelanced a lot for them after that. And then everything, everything came from that. Every once I got going with that, I started reaching out to other publications and started building a freelance career. And are you playing music this whole time, also? Um, so I hadn't played music in a long time, and then I started. Adam Adam started Narboots in two thousand nine, so that would have been around the same time that I was starting Metro. Okay, but what about your earlier experiences with Flat Planet, et cetera? That that was all already done before the writing. Yeah, there was a – I did a lot of music from – as a teenager through about maybe my early 20s and then maybe a teeny bit in my mid-20s, but otherwise that was it. So those are 10 years, yeah. And don't worry, dear listeners, we will play catch up with all of that. (laughs) (laughs) Um. But, but you did play music, and I was wondering, how much do you think it helps for a music writer to have actually gigged and worked as an artist before writing about music? Uh, I, don't, I don't know that it is critical in terms of the writing, but I do think it really helps in terms of the interviewing. I feel like I could speak okay. a certain kind of language with artists that makes them feel more comfortable, or and I can, under, I can talk to them about stuff about the songwriting process and and the band experience. And I feel like we become more allies instead of like, I'm the journalist trying to get the information from them. Right. So that's where I think it's really come in handy. Um, And we're going to get to your music history a little bit in, in conjunction with the book because they're related. Uh, I wanted to ask you about a uh, adventure you had as a journalist. Uh, You know that I'm a Rick and Morty fan. Yes. Uh, one of the nice ones, I hope. I would like to believe I'm one of the, the good ones. <laughs> uh, Rick and Morty fans have gotten a somewhat deserved bad reputation in, in recent years. But um, tell me about your adventures on the Rickmobile and also tell us what the hell is the Rickmobile. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, funny. Like, I was late to Rick and Morty. Um, my little brother, who I, who's, I don't necessarily agree with frequently on his tastes was always like, every time I'd see him, he'd be like, have you watched Rick and Morty? You got to watch Rick and Morty. I was like, yeah, yeah, I'll get to it. I'll get to it. <laughs> and then I did. I took him up on it eventually. This was somewhere between season two and three when that huge period of time happened where there was no... Right. I started watching the first season and I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. So I just, we, we just binged the whole two seasons. And then I had been contributing to Playboy at that point. And I got so into it. I was like, man, I would love to write something about Rick and Morty. So I just kind of was keeping my feelers open for something, you know, and some angle. And they were being so weird about season three. I figured season three was the end, but they were like giving no information about it because they probably didn't know. Right. And then all of a sudden I start reading about a Rickmobile. A Rickmobile was this like promotional event they were doing where they were driving around to cities in this like giant like van thing that looks like rick like bent over like the oscar meyer hot dog mobile like the wiener mobile exactly yeah but it's rick and i was like oh this is perfect and i just um i pitched my editor i'm like 
<laughs> I don't even know if I thought it would happen, but I was like, the article idea is that I'm going to ride in the Rickmobile. And uh, he's like, okay, that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and so that was as far as my idea was, but I ended up making it. I, I coordinated with Adult Swim. They they got me to interview um, Dan Harmon and uh, Justin Roiland, which was a phone interview. And they also set me up with the Rickmobile. And then I also interviewed somebody at Adult Swim. So I was able to like make it be like a fully fleshed out article. And we it was it was in conjunction to season three. So we were able to make it be about season three, but using the Rickmobile. Um, so the funny thing about the Rickmobile, too, is like not only is it exactly like the Wiener, the Oscar Mayer Wienermobile, but I learned that they were getting drivers from the Oscar Mayer Wiener Wherever, okay. They, that's where they were getting their drivers from. <laughs> like the driver told you that. <laughs> it's a special classification. Yeah. You have to have a special wiener license you have to, to get drive a special a... wiener light. Yeah. So I want to. I don't know this for a fact. So don't don't like you know don't gotcha media me this on. But <laughs> don't, don't don't quote me on this. He says on a recorded podcast. Go ahead. I'm going to say that <laughs> I'm I was the only journalist to ride in the Rickmobile during. I bet I'm. During the yeah, season three promo, I, I can't. I don't um, think anyone else did it. I'm going to go with that. Yeah, so we met <laughs> up. We met up in like Berkeley because they were doing an event in Berkeley, and so we met at like a Target parking lot, and they were like, "All right, so you know, we like to we basically like to ride around town and honk at people, and uh, then we you know eventually make our way to the where the event is." And I was like, "Awesome!" So they let me like ride in the front seat with the Rickmobile while we just drove around Berkeley. We went through downtown Berkeley. Uh, we went through this, just various streets. They had like a whole route that they did. And then we eventually landed at like this parking lot where they were going to set up for the rest of the day. And uh, it was, it was pretty funny because like people were like, so surprised that there was a Rickmobile riding around and they were like shocked, but like super happy. And they're just like waving and I would just wave back. <laughs> And and what were Rick and Morty? I mean, I said earlier, Rick and Morty fans get a bad reputation, but I feel like this is true of of anything. The worst fans are the loudest Mm -hmm. and the most outspoken. What were the the Rick and Morty fans that you met on the road like? Were they these arrogant pricks that we see on the Internet or? They just seem like nerdy comic book kids and well, not kids, more like in their 30s. 30-year-old kids. Yeah. I mean, uh, just to give you an idea, like one of the people that was at the event itself that waited in line all day was Blake, our friend Blake Morse from uh, Narboots. Yeah. Okay. So, and he's a sweetheart. He's, he's a, a sweetheart, nice but he's a, he's a total ge- video game comic book nerd. So he's exactly, I think he was kind of the archetype of, of who I saw. Okay. Yeah. And, and that makes sense. I mean, Blake is this... Very smart guy, super into pop culture, lives in a tiny little apartment and actually plays video games online for a living, which is the got to be the coolest way to make a living. Yeah. Yeah. He invited me over to play Legend of Zelda with him once. And it was so much fun that afterwards I was like, can I can I do this for a living? He's like, no. <laughs> Here's all the work you need to do to get to this wonderful place I've gotten to in life. You don't get to just step in. <laughs> um, I actually, I want to give you. I have like one of my one of my weirdest birthmark stories happened at the Rick and Morty event. Oh, I'm so glad you have birthmark stories. Why don't you explain that? <laughs> okay, just 
First off, this is an audio media. First off, yeah, I have a large birthmark on my face, and it, it's uh, it's what's called a wine stain. A port wine stain, right? yeah. yeah. So it's red. Uh, it covers my uh, all my left eye. It, it covers half my nose. It goes into my lip, and that's port, not not merlot. But not merlot. <laughs> so I never realized it was so specific. It wasn't just a wine stain. It was a port wine stain. Port okay. wine stain. Okay, so. Okay, I'm just dressed like I normally dress, which is like a dumb T-shirt and shorts. That's all I'm wearing. So a lot of people there were dressed up in the like as characters from Rick and Morty. So I'm just kind of sitting behind the the line. I'm kind of behind the Rickmobile. I was just like, I'd been doing a lot. Then I was kind of taking a break. I was looking at my phone, and this woman comes up to me and she's like, "Hey, is that is that prosthetic on your face?" I was like, no. I was like, it's a birthmark. And she's like, oh. And then she kind of was like pointing at all the people dressed up like Rick and Morty characters as kind of her justification for the question. Right, right. And I was kind of like, no. But I'm like, in my mind, I'm like, what character did she think I was? Uh, right. Did I miss an episode? Where's <laughs> I have like just a dumb T-shirt on. Right. You remember there was that episode where the guy had the big red thing on a quarter of his face? <laughs> And other than that, he just hung out in a t-shirt and jeans, sort of in the background. He yeah. wasn't really. Yeah, I guess. Major. Yeah, I was that guy. <laughs> but you know what? Listen, in her defense, isn't that exactly the kind of thing for like a hardcore geek culture fan to do? Is to try to go as deep as they can. Yeah, yeah. And and then wait for that one person that comes up to you all excited and is like, "Bro, season two, episode three! <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh. Um, you, you mentioned Blake and, and you've mentioned Narboots. Uh, I, I want to talk about some experiences that you and I have shared. I think where we became close was having uh, as close to what one might call a spiritual experience as uh, a diehard atheist like myself has. Um, and I'm referring, of course, to shows that we did with Narboots because you are Narboots and I'm Narboots. Uh, all of our listeners are Narboots, and mm-hmm. everyone who doesn't listen is also Narboots, because we are all Narboots. Um. <laughs> <laughs> can, you, can you explain to the audience what the hell Narboots is, now that they know they're Narboots? Okay, so Narboots is a band that Adam Davis and I have. Um, it used to be like a punk rock band with Adam and this myself and this guy named Bob Vielma, but it eventually turned into like an electronic band. Bob ended up quitting. Um, we also like we use an iPod and we just play, you know, we sing over it. We we dance in the audience. We try to like break the fourth wall as much as possible. Yeah, I would call it performance art more yeah. than I would call it a band. I mean, you guys really you do a thing. And at a certain point, we were a trio and then we were a duo, but then we started just sort of being like anyone can be in the band and so there's been people that have come and gone in the band uh blake is probably the most consistent member he's been once he started coming to shows he played bass at blake no he played percussion at one show eventually he just became our clown just like in a clown outfit you walk around and uh harass audience members he usually like smears food on my face for some reason <laughs> <laughs> i don't ask for this nor do i want it but he does it um, and you go with it. Yeah. And so you, Keith Lowell Jensen. Uh, had I've heard night. of him. Now, I don't remember. Did we ask you to be Narboots or did you decide you were Narboots and just started coming? 
I, I think you invited me to be Narboots. Okay. But then once I did it, I just, I couldn't get enough. It yeah. was incredible. I thought one of our best shows was, um, we played the Gilman and you were, um, like our sort of like the, you were like a preacher kind of, but you just had like, you read these like bizarre interludes in out between of the songs. book of Nar. Out of the book of Nar. And so we, we would do a song and then like, you had like a light up on you and you would just read these interludes all dramatically. And then we would go back and play another song. And then I think Blake was like at a table on the stage doing weird stuff and, and then serving cake. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. And, and that cake landed and, on me. And of course, always right. Yeah. Uh, the audience. Meanwhile, you guys are in the audience. At one point you pull a parachute out that that covers most of the audience there's balloons in the audience there's toilet paper flying all over the place in the audience you really are making there's a blake is out in the audience with a, a drum and some drumsticks but he'll pass those around yeah um there's another guy who became a member of the band when adam auctioned off being a member of the band at a fundraiser for his kid's school yes that's mark yeah and Mark's just such a low key, like you'd expect to see him at a PTA meeting guy, but he shows up. I mean, he's really into it. Yeah, I don't th- he's not like a band guy. He's not like, you know, Blake's a band guy. Blake plays right. in bands. Um, you're not, I mean, you used to be a band guy, but you're also a comedian, you're a performer. Mark. Yeah, this, this is just a parent at the school <laughs> who was like, but Narboot, if you experience it once, it really, it, it's incredible. And I, I do, I feel like it's church. That has nothing to do with religion. And Adam leans into that. I mm-hmm. mean, he does a thing that's a lot like an altar call at the end of it, at the end of a show where he, I mean, at, at Gilman Street, he led everyone outside the venue into the street and was like, made everyone pledge to like love each other. And, and oh, just, I, I just remember it being positive, affirming messages. Yeah. One show, I don't think you were at this show, but one time, we did this one show. Uh, I broke my uh, toe, so we had to make really low-key shows. And okay. So with this one show, we, we had it be really quiet, and we sang these, like, we, we turned the songs into these, like, like spiritual, acoustic spiritual type songs, and we kept the volume really low so that there wouldn't be dancing because I couldn't dance. And then we did a thing at the end where we had everybody write their name on a piece of paper, and we had them walk onto the Gilman stage and drop it into the water and proclaim that they were no longer that name and that they were Narboots. And like <laughs> people got like super, it was so like weird and awkward, but like people got really into it. They would just be like, I am now Narboots. Like they just said it with such like authority and like conviction. And then we, we did that until everybody was on stage. And then we like sang this like song where, you know, we were just all one, you know, no, we no longer had individual identities any longer. And I really it's- felt like for a moment that like, we could turn it into a cult if we wanted to. I was just thinking the same thing. It is dangerous how easily you can access that. And and I, I come from a very religious background when I was a kid. And the thing that really got me into the church and kept me there was that the feeling of being that that emotional. It's more than just a sense of belonging. It's a sense of euphoria mm-hmm. that you could get in in a good church service, and you guys deliver that. Yeah, uh, and yeah, if if you or Adam ever decided to cash in on it, <laughs> watch out, world. There's a new cult in town. <laughs> <laughs> 
it reminds me of the the rumor that science uh, Scientology started because the uh, Frank Herbert and uh, who else uh, Asimov uh, these guys were you know making a bet on who could start a religion and uh, Ron Hubbard won <laughs> <laughs> and kept going with it and they were like wait 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 the syphilis the syphilis is making you take this too far um, so. I would love for everybody to be able to check out Narboots. The recorded Narboots is, is fun. I enjoy it, but it's not really Narboots. It's not, it's just a tiny piece of what Narboots is. You took a break from Narboots to focus on the book. Adam is focused on his other band. Um, Omnigon. Omnigon. Uh, a great positive ska band. Um, will there be Narboots in the future? Will there be more Narboots coming? I think so. I think Adam and I were gearing up to do it again, but I think, you know, then COVID happened and not only is Narboots most exist in the live environment, but Narboots exist in a, an environment that is the opposite of what you need to be doing in COVID. For right. sure. They, they, we can't do like the show where we play on the deck and everybody sits down um, six feet away. Like we need to be, <laughs> right. we need to be like all really close and touching. So it's just, we have to, we got to be like deep in the vaccine, you know, before yes. this happens again. Yeah, uh, definitely. I, I agree. Uh, I hope it does. I hope it really like some of the, the most beautiful nights that I have spent were spent with Narboots. And, and I'll mention there was a night when it didn't work. There was this night at uh, uh, Harlow's in Sacramento and a small number of people participated but the vibe couldn't quite happen because there were too many people standing around the outside looking in who were not participating. And it, I, I almost, I'm, I'm glad that that happened because I was like, it really is up to the audience. It's like, you can have an amazing night or not. And we're, it's up to you. And when the audience chooses to, when we all choose to, it is incredible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's, you know, it's in your hands. What are you going to do with it? <laughs> So, uh, so the book is in defense of Ska. Yes. Um, why does Ska need defending, Aaron? Well, Ska, I think Ska needs defending because Ska is like the butt end of so many people. It's just a butt end of a joke for most people. Like, and I think most people don't even know much about Ska. Like all the people making fun of Ska, I think their level of knowledge is like, oh yeah, there was Ska bands on the radio in the 90s and there was Ska, there was like Tony... Tony Hawk pro skater video game had a couple ska songs on it. They don't really know anything about the music, but they know they think it's like this dorky, like goofy, meaningless music. And it's just stupid. So and I just don't think it's even gotten even, you know, 20 years later. Not really much has changed in terms of people's perception of the music. You know, people aside from the people that are into it and know more about it. You mentioned uh, the hard times in the book and yes. their ska parodies. And I think that what's so beautiful about those, why they work so well, is that they get it. It's written by someone who loves ska and knows its history. And so much of the ska ridicule, like you said, doesn't come from that place of knowing. Yeah, uh, it was interesting because I got to interview Eric Navarro's uh, uh, editor there, and he's like a ska fanatic. And he told me that, like, you know, he just gets all these pitches for ska um, articles, but they're like, 
they're, they don't come from a place of knowledge or love. They're just like, oh, yeah, uh, I want to do an article about how the next Wu-Tang Clan album is going to be ska because there's so many members. Get it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was in a sketch comedy troupe and, and one of the guys I was in the troupe with would uh, come to me all the time with like parody of, of hip hop. And I was like, dude, you don't like hip hop. And he's like, yeah, that's why I make fun of it. And I'm like, no, that's why you can't make fun of it. That's why it'll suck when you make fun of it. Cause you don't get it. You yeah. know, like the, I'm the rapping granny and I'm here to say like, no, that's not, that's always going to be awful. You have to understand a subculture. If you're going to actually have something like compelling or funny or unique to say about it. So you got to interview Pauline black from the selector. I did. Yeah. And she, she asked you, that was the first thing she asked you, wasn't it? Why does Scott need defending? Yeah, I totally froze at first. I was just like, <laughs> I, was, I was like, uh, can I try to explain? And it's like, I realized too that from a British perspective, Scott has a totally different legacy than, than right. in the US. And just try, I had to like explain all of that to her. Like, well, you know, in the US, you know, it's different, you know, because in the in the UK, like ska, two tone ska had like five like amazing bands all become pop stars and become like a part of the whole pop culture canon for decades later, and every single one of those bands totally deserved it too. So it's hard to and, be like ska like in England, ska doesn't need defending. And didn't the original uh, Jamaican ska do? better in england than it did in america it was oh yeah yeah never as big as in jamaica but they were aware of it i mean even the beatles referenced it they were aware of it because um so there was there was immigration from jamaica to both the u.s and england there was high immigration to both but the difference was that jamaicans assimilated with american black culture in England, there wasn't uh, a na- there wasn't that there, so they had more of an immigrant culture. So right. They, so there would be immigrant populations, and they brought their culture with them, and so that culture was ska, rock steady, reggae, whatever you know, depending on what year it was, and it proliferated. In 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 the U.S., it didn't proliferate because they were kind of sort of disguising or kind of hiding their who they were, and they were trying to fit in more with you know what was popular with black culture in the U.S. Right. So you had these immigrant cultures and they had the whole sound system, they had parties, they had the music. And then so the neighboring white communities like the poor white skinheads and stuff, they would be super into it. They, they heard it from their neighbors and they were super into it. And that's another thing you, you have to take a whole chapter of your book to explain that skinheads were not always uh, racist. And, and even now are mostly not racist, <laughs> but the whole racist skinhead, they're not necessarily anti-racist as you talk about, not, not in the beginning. Uh, it's kind of like those lines got drawn later when the national front recruited mm-hmm. uh, within the skinhead movement. And then you get these Nazi skins and all that garbage. What's interesting. I didn't know this. I knew, I knew that legacy of like, not racist, racist, anti-racist. I kind of knew that. Right. Like, I didn't know that the two-tone bands were so directly involved with like making a conscious effort to reclaim skinhead culture as anti-racist. That was so. Let me let me stop you there real quick and explain what you mean when you say uh, two-tone and uh, explain second wave. 
Two-tone ska. So ska music was uh, a Jamaican form of music in the late 50s and early 60s. Um, it kind of went away as the music changed to rock steady, to to the first version of reggae, to the like roots reggae, which was like the slowed down um, stuff that most people are familiar with. Very uh, deep bass, very like spiritual stuff. That's what was really popular in the 70s. Um, ska was just kind of gone. It was like dad music at that point. And um, in the late 70s, you had these bands. The Specials were like the first one. Madness kind of happened at the same time. Um, they were digging up these old ska records. And um, they were like, we can, you know, mix it with the punk that's happening right now and make like a whole new music. And and, and just, to, just to step back, the, initially what they wanted to do is they wanted to take the popular reggae and mix it with punk and make this like really cool, like multicultural political music, but they couldn't really gel reggae and punk. So they went right. backwards to ska. Ska worked better because it was faster energy. And they basically recontextualized ska as to be sort of like a, a punk subgenre, to be this like multicultural thing where there was like immigrants and like British punks all kind of sharing their world and creating this new form of music. It was like highly political. It was highly anti-racist. Um, it was very attached to the politics of England at the time. And at the time, the National Front were an overt anti-immigrant racist or a political group who were gaining in popularity. And that was one of the main targets for the two-tone bands was the National Front and to just sort of squash that. And I think they were largely successful in, in their part into sort of marginalize the national front um but part of it was being anti-racist and they saw the skinheads the skinheads were around and the skinheads were like fascist and they knew that there was skinhead culture with reggae back in the 60s and so they really adopted and they really encouraged people to think back to skinheads from the 60s and say it's it's not a racist thing. It's an anti. It wasn't an anti-racist thing in the '60s, but the the two-tone bands it, said it was. They basically encouraged right. the idea that being a skinhead is anti-racist. And which is funny because the the '60s skinheads were black and white, and they were mostly white, but kids that were into black music and into black culture. Yes. So that made it easy for what you're talking about for them to say it was anti-racist. Mm-hmm. But actually, there was some racist against Pakistani immigrants. <laughs> yeah, there was for sure. Pretty, right. pretty bad stuff, actually. So. Uh, black and whites getting together <laughs> to be racist against Pakistani. <laughs> as soon as you hear that black and white, like you're like, oh, so it's anti-racist. Well, uh, no, it's more complicated. <laughs> so, yeah, so skinhead ever since two-tone it became this dichotomy it's either it's either like anti-racist like aggressively anti-racist or racist it's like kind of it almost became like polarizing in a weird way Uh, which is funny because that and then you know jump jumping over to america many years later that's what we grew up with i knew nazi skins and i knew sharps which were skinheads against racial prejudice Mm -hmm. and these these were sharps at this point where i mean they would you know all get together in a, in a van or in a truck and go find sharps to beat up. I mean, it was 
very much two two groups violently opposed to one another. Yeah, definitely. Um, okay, so that's that's the second wave of ska, mm-hmm. and then when people talk about third wave, that's mostly what happened over here in America. Um, and, and and I want to get to that and kind of your opinion on the whole wave thing. But first, I one of the things you do in the book that I really like is you capture over and over again different people's story of that moment that they fell in love with ska. Mm-hmm. And I have mine. Uh, I was wondering if you can tell me your moment. And uh, if you tell me yours, I'll tell you mine. Oh, yeah. That sounds great. Um, I'll make a deal. I'll make a trade. My moment? So I was really into like, I grew up, so I was in Gilroy and music at that point there was like popular music and then there was like it felt like underground music was sort of almost mythological in a weird way and like i knew that all the cool music was happening in the in the clubs in in san jose and san francisco and santa cruz but i didn't really know much about it so i was very much like trying to find out what this like club music was Right. And at first, like the first kind of club music I was finding was like what that was like called the funk scene. That was like what Primus came out of. And I was really into Primus. I really loved Primus. I, I had kind of heard about Mr. Bungle. They were part of that. And then also some kind of bad funk bands that were a part of that same scene. But I, I really liked this whole like club element of it. Um, but I eventually discovered Skank and Pickle. Somebody told me to go see Skank and Pickle. I went uh, this was a club in uh, Santa Clara, which is just next to San Jose. And I was totally blown away. That was like, that's exactly what I wanted. It had that energy that I want, that I liked about the club shows, but it was also like way more fun, way more musically interesting and almost like a circus show in terms of like the performance, like costumes and like, cue cards um unicycles unicycles some juggling if i remember correctly yeah the, one of the guys does like the devil sticks thing and uh stage diving you know just like audience participation and and then like the third element of that was like just sort of getting a sense of like that the audience was everybody there wasn't like it was like you know you'd see like metal heads you'd see like stoners you'd see weird nerdy kids like it was like a real blend of everybody so it wasn't like an intimidating scene at all you just felt like you you had a place in that scene and i love that skanking pickle and you mentioned this in the book you may go see him i feel like you just saw a really silly fun show yeah and it's only kind of looking back at it later that you realize okay and there was uh an asian dude singing a song about being asian and inviting all the asians to come up on stage with him Mm -hmm. in a scene where a lot of people didn't even realize there were Asians in that scene. Yeah. You know, there was an out lesbian in the group. Yeah. Um, there were things about them that were actually very bold and very brave, uh, but they were just done with so much confidence and so much just, well, of course, that it was almost an afterthought that, oh, actually, this is really cool. <laughs> and they say <sang, laughs> this is more than silly. And they sang overtly anti-racist songs, too, like serious songs right. that would be interspersed between some of the goofiest shit. My story is so much more boring. Uh, I was often introduced to music by my brothers, but not not intentionally. It's so funny how many of my memories are me sneaking into their rooms when they weren't home. And that was my like ticket to what was cool. And I found a specials cassette tape. Mm-hmm. And I remember putting it on and thinking, 
that it sounded nostalgic and not like anything else I heard. I'd heard. I was just like, "What? What is this?" Because it did. It had. It did. It had this folksy and this circusy sort of bounce to it, and yet it, it also had this kind of new wave cool to it. Um, some of the voices were very black sounding voices, also, which was like, "Oh, this is dangerous." Because we listened to very little black music at that point in our personal mm-hmm. history. That changed very quickly, but <laughs> um, and and it blew me away. And I. That was it. I, I loved Ska ever since. And then I found out about Madness. I became a huge Madness nut. And then I found out about Fishbone. And after Fishbone, forget it. <laughs> um, and I think Fishbone was the breaking through point for a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, you can't really do better than Fishbone. I mean, I think that they're one of the best uh, American bands, period. Yes. I. Uh, as soon as you say that you like Ska, uh, it does become part of your identity. And then you start, whenever someone sees a ska meme, they tag you. When <laughs> they post anything they read about. Just today, someone posted a thing about ska on my wall uh, saying the age of all the bands. And I'm like, oh, my God, even the new bands like uh, Mustard Plug are uh, 20 years old. <laughs> um, you know, <laughs> yeah. the new the new is old. How old are we? Uh, but I defend ska by disassociating it from the nineties and from the post nineties ska. Mm -hmm. And I've done that for years. And I love that you, you do point out that this era doesn't define ska, but you go further and you defend that era as well. And I found myself re-listening to a lot of that stuff that I had dismissed because it was tarnishing the reputation of my beloved ska. And I never wanted to be the old dude that thought that good music only happened in his glory days of high school and just after Mm -hmm. i watched too many people do that my dad was not one of them my dad always listened to new music and i was like okay that's cool like don't get stuck and yet i did do that with one genre i did that with ska and so i've had a good time making a playlist for myself as i'm reading your book and and really enjoying arrogant sons of bitches and um uh, a lot of other stuff as well I, i think i even wrote you a couple bands that i was listening to that i was enjoying um, and you do that while defending the, the wacky ska as well and defending people warping ska and not being ska purists, uh, well, while also appreciating the purists and, and how well they do. Um, I actually, have you always go ahead. It's kind of the weird, it's kind of a weird thing because like the ska purists, some of the ska purists in the nineties were actually some of the better musicians but the scene was a little bit harder to crack and a little bit more elitist. The, right. the ska punk scene was way more um, welcoming. Anybody could be in the ska punk scene. There was like no elitism whatsoever. But, you know, I, I love Hepcat. They're like one of the best bands from the 90s. But I went to a couple of their shows and I definitely felt awkward there. You know, people were dressed nice. People knew how to dance. The band was super right. cool. I mean, and they would that was an easier band. I mean, there was like straight up like cool skinhead bands, not racist, but not necessarily friendly if you weren't part of the club. <laughs> right. Right. So, you know, if that there's a there's a duality in the nineties. And you gotta appreciate, you know, even if you don't like the music of ska punk, you gotta at least appreciate that it was like it was like one of the most least it was the what's the word I'm looking for? The opposite of elitism is the least elite elite 
music there was going in the least elite scene. Right. Yeah. I, it's, it's funny how we object so hard to wacky because even within punk ska, we were very accepting of Operation Ivy, mm-hmm. but but they weren't wacky. They yeah. were very serious. Uh, and, and with that, I want I, I would like you, if you would, to read uh, a section of your book where you talk about okay ska as as wacky nerd music. <laughs> okay, just a second. Oh, I, I I had it, but then I I'm gonna have to edit. No. <laughs> no, no, edit. <laughs> no, we only edit to make me look better. <laughs> we uh, <laughs> we will not help you in post. I'm sorry. Get your own podcast, Aaron. I heard I heard you were working on that. <laughs> I could just read it if you can't no, pull it. it together as an author. I, one of us is a professional. <laughs> okay, I got it. You ready? I'm going to leave a little space so you can edit. All right. Okay. It's so entrenched in culture to make fun of Ska's wacky nerd music. No one questions why nerdy music is such a bad thing. Are we also throwing They Might Be Giants, Weird Al, and Devo under the bus? Because last time I checked, they were some of the best artists to come out in the past 40 years. Besides, if I had to choose between some douchebag rock star flexing his muscles on stage while playing an uninspired guitar solo to woo groupies to his hotel room later that night, or some silly kids who spent hours discussing the pentonic scale and all the tacos they want to eat after the show, I say long live band nerds and pass me a taco. (laughs) I love that. And it, it does. It so captures like, what's wrong with wacky? Yeah, And like we talked about with Skanking Pickle, you can be wacky and, and still have some important stuff to say as well. I mean, I met definitely my band. I mean, my band was wacky. Like, I mean, I came from that for sure. Like we sang about food and uh, your band was Flat Planet. Yeah. I mean, right. we came from that. That So that's where I that's partly where I get like a little bit of a chip on my shoulder because people are like wacky nerds. But I was like, we did that, but we. Like, I don't think you, I think you're misunderstanding the motivation behind what we were doing. Like, we were trying to create like a crazy show. We were trying to like make everyone have fun, whether they wanted to or not. We were like trying to like, you know, we were trying to shake people out of their like sort of like feeling of being like, uh, you know, I'm going to sip my beer and be cool. We wanted to like break that glass. So we would go and, as far. And that's what we got from Skank and Pickle was like, let's just make this so like, so just crazy and, and chaotic and fun that you just like you you're either going to join or you're just going to like get left behind that's uh in the context of its time yes also it, it it's a, a response to a lot of pretentiousness oh it was every like there was so much pretentious music i mean i think people forget that too like it wasn't like it wasn't just what was on the radio. Think about all the bands that we were playing with because all the small bands, they were trying to emulate like the worst versions of alternative rock, like just the breathiest, like broodingest, you know, just like boringest stuff. It was so much of that. And like rap metal was just all over the clubs at that <laughs> time. And it was so horrible. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I mean, even rap metal as your one alternative that could be silly it was usually silly in like a really gross yeah kind of nasty way <laughs> yeah i remember uh, <laughs> where ska was silly in this really inclusive fun way yeah we one of the bands one of the san jose bands and part of that scene was called uh, stoners with boners <laughs> they were like rap, uh, rap metal or whatever i don't know 
Let me let me now read you a quote from your own book. Oh. Uh, seeing seeing unity dissipated, some bands broke up, others transitioned into other styles of music. Most horrifically, funk. <laughs> <laughs> Why the funk hatred, my friend? <laughs> I would say What's, funk did not age well at all. Uh, and and you don't mean real like no. George Clinton funk. You mean white boy nineties. Uh, well, the Red Hot Chili Peppers were their patron saints, and they've probably aged the best of all of them. But Limbo Maniacs and yeah, exactly. what else? Um, uh, Funky Blue Velvet. There was a band. Sacramento. Fungo Mungo was a pretty. That I remember one, Fungo Mungo? One In the, fact, I remember having a lot of fun at some Fungo Mungo shows. I'm sure, like at the time, it was fun, but it just the music itself hasn't aged well. You know, you listen back, you're just like, not very good. <laughs> and a lot of the ska bands, you know, they went through like, they would have like a funk song. You know, Skank and Pickle had like funk songs in their early stuff. And that stuff does not sound good now. That's just like skip, skip. <laughs> right, right. But the ska Even stuff still sounds great. It held up. Yeah. Um, so you're not you're not big on the idea of a third wave ska, and if I understand it, well, why don't I let you explain it? What, what do you see the third wave as really being? So people use this term third wave, I think, because they see second wave as two tone, and they say two tone was like 1979 to 1982 or 1981, and then third wave is like 95 to like 97, and this is where I, this is my main objection to third wave because like. Ska in the U.S. started in, like, 1981. I mean, basically, like, it piggybacked right off of Two-Tone. Like, the Two-Tone bands, the music seeped into the U.S. and bands started up in in that same time. And they created scenes. They created really vibrant scenes in their cities, and they toured. They just weren't on the radio. Like, the Untouchables were, like, a huge band in L.A. Um, Bim Scala Bim. Yeah. What were you going to say? It's kind of like a like a theory of evolution. You know, you, you only see the complete creatures uh, unless you go digging and then you find the fossil yeah. record <laughs> and you see that it was just evolving. It was one form of music that existed the whole time. And I think that the big thing of the big reason I rejected is because it was so popular. It just wasn't mainstream popular. Like the most popular band in L.A. in the early 80s was the Untouchables. I mean, uh, regardless of music, you know, Um the Uptones were uh, the, the band from the Northern California, probably the biggest band of the area at the time, the, the band that drew the most people. They weren't, uh, they didn't get a record deal, you know, they didn't go to that larger level. I mean, this just happened in every single major city. The, the most popular band of the city, Heavy Manners in Chicago from the early 80s, they were, you know, they were packing out the biggest clubs. So the, the Scott bands, they made huge scenes. And, you know, bands came after them, you know, mid 80s, late 80s. Um, it just kept going. And even like the quote unquote third wave style, which is what we think of as like faster, crazier punk. I mean, that was happening. Fishbone was doing that. Listen to Fishbone's first EP. That's third wave ska. And right. That's, that's right. like 1985. And as far as the wackiness, you you look at the specials and they have a sense of humor, but they're not wacky. But Bad Manners, how yeah. early did Bad Manners start? Same same era as uh, specials, maybe like a year after you, them. I mean, since, you don't get sillier than Buster Blood Vessel and Bad Manners, and and in fact, they were very, they were one of the two tone bands that were coming over here and being successful as ska moved into the states. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's actually, it's funny, like um, Chris Dow from 
Fishbone, who I, I, who I interviewed, he talked a lot about how um, he felt bad manners were like really influential, and but didn't really get their due. And I think that was part of the reason was because a they continued to tour, all the other bands broke up, and b they kind of had that silly vibe, which really caught on in the U.S. Yeah, they were ridiculous. Uh, and it's funny because I think that in in different parts, uh, different times in my life, I've actually tried to. Some part of me has wanted to not be a bad manners fan, mm-hmm. you know, because I'm just like, I mean, the specials are so cool. <laughs> you know? uh, I would want to be one of the specials. I would never want to be Buster Blood Vessel because he's just this big, ridiculous, crazy, goofy. And then I put them on, and I go, Oh no, they're great. I mean, they're just fantastic. Mm-hmm. And even you know, Fishbone, the first EP and the first album, they say they say things that are uh, very political and, and they have things to say, but it's definitely done in a silly package. Right. I mean, party at ground zero, it's really great lyrics, but I mean, it's like, it's the silly sound of, of 90 ska right there in that song. Right. Um, and then I, you have two takes on fourth wave that I love. Like uh, at the same time, while saying that these, these waves don't exist, you're like, if it does, <laughs> Mocking ska is so popular right now that even the bands and the ska fans being mocked are loving it. Yes. They're, they're like participating in it. And that's your fourth wave. <laughs> ska parody. It's the golden age of ska parody. Yes. I I, I wouldn't I want to say that um I agree with that point. I also think that there is a little bit more of I don't I don't know if I want to call it a fourth wave, but I think there is much more of a new generation of ska bands very recently. I mean, they're, they they didn't just start, but they're really building up recently. That I don't see you. I don't think you quite saw the energy for them even like two years ago. Like and and who? What are some examples? Um, well, I definitely think Jeremy. Hunter Scottsdale Network is really a big energy, like a big engine on this. People are really—they're fantastic. I yeah. really love every time a new video comes out. I can't wait. Um, people who don't know anything about ska or maybe have just dismissed ska, they see Jeremy's videos and it kind of brings them back into the music or brings them into it for the first time. Um, and also, they have a like an original project called Jer G J E R that um, the they just released a single and has a and they have a full length next year and it's great. I'm totally looking forward to it. But um, otherwise, I'd say like the real big engine on, on newer Scott is uh, Bad Time Records. They're just releasing all these new bands and they're great. It's more punk ska, interestingly. Okay. Um, you know, Kill Lincoln, um, Cat Bite, all these bands, but they're really good and they're all really young and they have energy and they have definitely reclaim ska as not like part of 90s as its own new thing which i think hasn't really happened much in the u.s till recently where it's like no we're not an extension of that we're our own thing right right and it does it feels like each generation can take ska and find what they want to do with it um before I let you go, I, I want you to talk a little bit about Mexican ska and the scene that's happening uh, both in Mexico and in uh, the Mexican-American communities. Sure, yeah. Um, ska in Mexico and ska in, in like, in, it's in it's in Mexican-American communities, but it's definitely mostly in L.A. Um, okay. 
happened, well, I would say probably Mexico first, but followed by, uh, you know, Mexican-American. In Mexico, so this was, I, I slightly argued that that you could possibly call Mexico fourth wave. And, right. and I, the criteria I gave it was this. If you're going to believe the wave theory, the wave theory is that second wave piggybacked off of the first. It was influenced by the first and it was recontextualized for that generation. Third wave was influenced by second wave and it was recontextualized. Mexico was mostly influenced by third wave. Like most of the bands in Mexico that got going in the 90s and, and are still popular they heard about ska first from MTV and from like this, just that nineties ska thing going on. So you could argue that because of that, their fourth wave, that it, that it was their influence was 90s ska and that they made it their own culture. They made it their own thing. And it's huge. It's gigantic. It's gotten like it, first peaked in like the early 2000s it got like mainstream in mexico in like the early 2000s that's when they started getting like singles on the radio like bands like inspector and panteon rococo and uh sectacor those bands mostly started in like the late 90s mid 90s but then yeah they they were getting record deals in that era it kind of like went down after that um the labels pulled out you know they were kind of diy again but after they were diy again they just completely built this whole thing back up to present day where they're just like putting on these gigantic, enormous festivals, like multiple festivals a year where there's like 20, 25,000 people there. Wow. Just That's to, a city. Just to see, yeah, just to see ska, like a ska festival, only ska bands. And, and not touring bands coming over from England or from America, but mostly homegrown Mexican ska bands. At first, but they it got to be so big that they um, started drawing all the big ska bands from all over the world. Like, Oh, wonderful. And to them, and then like the selector, I know the selector told me that they went over there. They're just like, oh my God, this is insane. The uh, Scottalites, you know, all the big bands started going there because they like were reaching out to them. And to them, it's like, this is the most, this is the best ska thing happening right now. And all those kids are just excited to see any ska band from any country. God, I love ska. Uh, <laughs> I have I have one question that I want to close on, but before that, I I wanted to um, ask you. Uh, we we had talked about this before you came on. You're going to put together a playlist that spotlights the music that we talked about and the yes. and the music that you talk about in your book. Um, so make sure and get that to us, and we will link that. So anyone listening right now, if you go to our um, our page for this podcast, we will. Uh, we will have a link to Aaron's playlist on Spotify um, and go, go check out some Scott. And, and if you, if, if you are new to the genre or you feel like giving it a second chance, maybe the, the final question will give you a good starting point. Doing Scott covers of other music is a long, long standing tradition. And it's, it's fun because it really plays. I mean, I also love when jazz musicians do that, you know, um, when John Coltrane does, these are a few of my favorite things. It, it shows you what John Coltrane's doing in his music when he breaks down something that was familiar to you. So I wanted to ask you, Aaron, what is your uh, favorite ska cover? Okay, so 
I made a I made a list of five. I hope that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I knew when I asked you, I was like, you won't be able to get it to one. I got mine to one, but you go ahead. Your favorite five ska covers. Okay. I tried to be creative too. So my first one is a, a more a more uh a less creative. My first one's a less creative. It's specials monkey man. That's two uh-huh. toots metal. Okay. But but isn't the original also ska? Yeah. Oh, so does it have to be okay. um, not ska? No, it doesn't have okay. to be, but that, but but it doesn't count for as many points. Okay. If. <laughs> <laughs> okay, number two. <laughs> We're going to go with Mephiscopheles and the Bumblebee tuna song, which is like a commercial cover. Right, right. Okay. Number three. We're going to go with Voodoo Gold Skulls and Charlie Brown. Do you know that Excellent. One? Okay. Yes, I know both the original is is who was the original? Is it the Platters? I have no idea. Got the originals uh, wonderful, and I believe it's a Liebert and Stoller uh, composition. Uh, really, really fun song. Why is everybody always picking on me? And yes, the Voodoo Glow Skulls from Riverside, just like me. Uh, wonderful version. Um, number two, I'm going to go with Madness and It Must Be Love. Okay. Are you familiar with? Have you heard the original uh, Lobby Sifri? I didn't know that's who it was. Yes, I've heard the original though. Okay, yeah. A great song, like a kind of a folk pop song. Uh, okay, so number one, number one Scott cover. I'm going to go with Hepcat and the song Marcus Garvey. Nice. I am not familiar, and I will have to go check it out. That's an old Scott song. I'm glad. It's an old Scott song. I'm glad you got one that I'm not familiar <laughs> with. Who did the original? It's Scottalites, and uh, so the singer is Bongo Man Byfield. Nice. Uh, so I am going to go with Madness covering Tchaikovsky's Swan Lake. Oh, that's a good that's a good selection. And I am not a fan generally of live recordings. I like studio recordings with with just a few exceptions. The the, the live version of that is great. Uh, especially because you hear this loud, thuggy voice at the beginning go, you like Tchaikovsky? <laughs> it just <laughs> thrills me to no end. Um, I would love to uh, dedicate today's episode to uh, to Tibbert and uh, Johnny Nash, who uh, two giants in uh, Jamaican music and in ska, who the world lost uh, in the last month. Um very sad to hear of Toots' passing, especially because I never got to see him live, which I will always regret because he played in Sacramento so frequently. Um, Aaron, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. It was a blast having you. Thank you. I'm going to uh, go ahead and do the credits now, and you'll have to just sit there and listen like a good boy. I'll listen, yeah. <laughs> thank, thank you so much to uh, our producers at Hyperpixel. Uh, that would be Joe... Honor and Jack Matrenga uh, for making all of this happen and doing the, the hard work of editing out all of me and Aaron's mistakes. Um, once their editing is done, no one will know that Aaron cried during the interview and uh, that I started screaming at him. So that'll just be completely wiped from the interview because of the professional work of my producers. Let me again thank our sponsor at uh, 800-pound Gorilla Records. Please go check out all their great stuff, including my album, and special not for rehire on amazon prime and uh, thank you all for listening and for subscribing and uh aaron i can't let you go yet oh yeah are we going to talk about jesus was a friend of mine (laughs) i have some music i want to close on (laughs) aaron why am i 
an atheist who cannot stop walking around singing that Jesus is my friend. I'm, uh, so since we're running late, I'm going to try to give you the history of that song really briefly. Do you want to hear it? Do it. Okay, so Sun, Sunseed, they were a Christian band from the late 70s, uh, Brooklyn, I think. And um, they were trying to make like exciting, fun music because most Christian music was not at that point. And um, so they had like mostly rock and roll stuff. The One of the members of the band, Sal... Policetti, he had wanted to write a song. He hadn't written a song for the band. He'd never written a song ever. So he was listening to the radio and he heard too much pressure by the selector. Nice. He didn't know what it was. He didn't know that it was called ska. He didn't know anything about it. He just liked it. And he went home and he just tried to write his best version of that song. And, <laughs> and it was Jesus is a friend of mine. And the band did not like it at all. Oh, wow. Um, but, you know, they showed it to some friends and the friends were like, this is amazing. So the band reluctantly let him play that song at shows. And every time they played at a show, audience went nuts. Uh, band still didn't like it. <laughs> and so they got invited to play on this like a Sunday morning Christian show called The First Estate. And... Um, the producers of the show said, you got to play that Jesus was a friend of mine song. I love it. And the band were like, oh, God, I don't want to play that. But, the, you know, Sal was like, yes, awesome. So they played that and they played one other song. And even the the they just actually they didn't dress like that normally. They just uh, dressed like uh, rock guys. But the producers like dressed them up in those weird blue suits for the show. Oh, just the highlight, the, the, the height of 70s evangelist fashion. Yeah. And. That was it. So the band broke up in like uh, 1983. And and you watch the video and you want to laugh. Yeah. It's Obviously, that's why it's popular, I think, at first. Its appeal is that they're just so corny. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, you find that you're getting into it because he's a fantastic bass player. The guitarist yeah. is bitching. The whole band is in the pocket. I mean, it's it's good. It's cheesy and corny, and it's great. And so the this this the the show someone at the show had like t- taped it and brought the tape home and just had it in their you know closet or whatever and and like some like you know decades later I think they dug it up and were like this is awesome and it just kind of passed around and eventually it got online and it just blew up in like 2008 is when it like became a viral hit um, totally surprised Sal. You know, someone was like, hey, have you checked this website out? <laughs> isn't that you? And then he didn't he get invited on stage with a with the current ska band? Yeah, actually, one of my friends uh, w- went to England and backed him at like a ska festival like a couple years ago. Uh, and, this, and he yeah, he played it. He was went crazy. And he's the bass player in the video and, yeah. and the guy doing most of the singing. He uh, that was like his only song. He didn't he didn't write any of the other songs. He didn't sing any of the other songs. That's like his one. right. The song was know, the song was in like those idiots. <laughs> they had a genius in their midst, and they were uh, Glee. The Glee I'm, covered it once. It was on Community. It's like it's made the rounds. That's so funny, yeah. and it's so much fun. It's a blast. Uh, Aaron, where can our listeners find you online? Um, best place to find me is on my Instagram, which would be at. Aaron underscore Carnes. C-A-R-N-E-S. Correct. 
All right, and watch for that playlist yes. on Spotify. And uh, this time, I think for real, thank you so much for joining me. And uh, why don't we go out listening to uh, Jesus is a Friend of Mine. All right. Jesus is a friend of mine. Jesus is my friend. Jesus is a friend of mine. I have a friend in Jesus. Jesus is a friend of mine. Jesus is my friend. Jesus is a friend of mine. He taught me how to live my life as it should be. He taught me how to turn my cheek when people laugh at me. I've had friends before, and I can tell you that he's one who will never leave you flat. Hey, thank you so much for listening. I am super excited about our next guests. We have Wendy and Richard Penny, uh, creators of the comic book Elf Quest, which I have been a fan of since junior high. And they actually have some embarrassing intimate details about me and my enjoyment of Elf Quest. So be sure to tune in for that. Find out about uh, Wendy's Red Sonia phase and everything. It's it's gonna be a blast. Jesus is my friend. Jesus is a friend of mine. I have a friend in Jesus. Jesus is a friend of mine. Jesus is a friend of mine. Jesus is a friend of mine.